Um, so there are those things in life, aren't there, um, where you have to make a change or where you're called to make a sacrifice in order to do that thing. One of those things is having children. Whether you have children or whether friends of yours have children, you will have seen how life has to change when they come along. And it's fast occurring to me that that doesn't stop once your children go to school. And my eldest is five, and uh, the recent sacrifice that I'm finding I'm having to work through is my pride. So I'm quite naturally a British person, I'm quite reserved, and I hate being embarrassed, and I hate being told off. I'm really sensitive. And um, in the summer, one of the things I love to do with the children, pretty much every day if I can, is we'll have tea somewhere like the common. Um, tea time at home I find quite brutal, and uh, so if I can, I'll have made a picnic and we'll just sit on the common, it's much simpler. But one problem keeps occurring. I'll have just laid out the rug, well, I've got all the food out. I've got five, three, and one-year-olds. So, you know, it's a quite a mission, and I'm often on my own. And uh, we've sat down, we've just started the picnic, and Raph says, Mum, I need to do a pee. And I'm like, ah, oh, I can't. The cafe's too far. You're too young for me to send you on your own. I do not want to pack up everything we've just unpacked and cart us all over to the loo in the cafe just to then come back and set it up again. The only option available to me is what my friends call a jungle wee. And um, I don't know what you think about jungle wees. It's not really my thing. Um, and, uh, and I don't know what other people on the common think about little children going around the common peeing. Um, I don't know what they think. So, but it's the, the easiest option, so that's the one I go with. So this is my strategy. I think, okay, well, I don't want to get told off. So basically, I need to send Raph to the furthest possible a tree away from me so that no one associates him with me. And so I said, fine, Raph, off you go. go. Go to that tree over there and, and do your pee there. And he's like, what, this tree? And I'm like, no, 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 the one right over there. So I can still see him, so he's still safe. So he gets over to this tree, pulls his trousers and his pants down, so he's stark naked, and then shouts to me, Mum, Mum, which way's the wind blowing? <laughs> no. <laughs> and I can see this group of women who I'm like, they definitely won't approve. So I'm like... That way, that went that way, <laughs> trying to not, anyway. And uh, he's like, which way? I'm like, you're fine. Um, there are those things, those, those times in life where you have to make these sacrifices. Um, that, to be fair, is a minimal one to have to make for the sake of my children. This passage um, that we're looking at today is really about the ultimate sacrifice. And it's a really difficult passage. When I looked up the passage that Jager had given me, I was Oh, Jago, you always give me the really difficult ones to talk on. There are those passages of where you read what Jesus is saying, and it feels like eating chocolate cake. You're like, I could listen to this all day. I could eat chocolate cake all day. And then there are the passages like this one, which basically feels like drinking pureed kale and broccoli without any sweetener. It's a really difficult passage to digest. When you read it, you know it's going to require a response that is, that is difficult to give. And yet, with these hard sayings of Jesus, they are there for our good. They are there to benefit us. And I think what we have to come to this passage remembering is that we are not going to fully understand this passage. We are not going to fully conquer this passage in one reading, probably not in the whole of our Christian life. But these passages are there to be chewed upon, to let them bring bits of revelation, bits of transformation in our lives to have an open ear, to have a soft heart to these passages, even if what we want to do is run away from them, is skip over them. And I'm going to look at this passage into the two parts. 
Um, the first, looking at the headlines of what this passage is actually talking about, and then looking at it within the context of what we have to look at it through in order to fully understand it. So kind of part one, um, what's Jesus talking about? Well, essentially what Jesus is doing is he's drawing a line between what a true disciple is and what I've termed as a casual Christian. In the passage previously, he's been talking to the disciples. And then in verse 25, at the beginning of the passage we've read, it says large crowds were, turning, were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said. So Jesus is turning from the disciples and talking to the crowds. That's who he's addressing. Now, these crowds, they've been following Jesus around. They've been seeing his healings. They've been listening to his teachings. And they're probably very caught up in the excitement of all that is going on, of all that they're seeing Jesus doing. But they haven't actually made a true commitment to Jesus yet. At best, they have probably made a superficial commitment. And what Jesus is saying to them is, there is no room as a disciple of me for casual commitment, for superficial commitment. It is all or nothing. Being my disciple requires everything. And he kind of lays three conditions down. The first is in verse 26, where he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, put me above all of your relationships. Now, you've probably heard before that this passage is not meant to be taken literally. John Stott says, don't be an unimaginative literalist when it comes to looking at this verse. We are not called to actually actively hate our family, our friends. The Bible uses hate in different ways. Sometimes it uses it in the sense of actively hate something. So actively hate sin, abhor sin. Other times it uses it in the sense of hate comparatively. So in Genesis 29, it talks about how Jacob has fallen in love with Rachel, the younger of two sisters, but he first has to marry Leah. Now he loves Leah, but he really loves Rachel. And it talks about how it looks as though he hates Leah because he loves Rachel so much more. That's what this passage is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, love me so much more than your family, than your friends, that it comparatively looks like you hate your family. He's saying, love me the most. Put me first. The second thing, again, verse 26, is he says, even your own life. If you do not take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, put me above all ambition. Discipleship essentially is about self-denial. It's about removing the self from the center and putting Christ in the center. So that's the second condition. He says, put me above all ambition. The third thing he says is, put me above all your possessions in verse 33. Verse 33, he says, sell all of your possessions. Now again, don't take it literally. He might ask you to do that, but the likelihood is, is what Jesus is saying is, Put me above your possessions. Don't let your possessions be what you pursue. Don't let them be your be-all and end-all. Let them be a means to an end. But let Jesus be the beginning and the end. And I was sort of thinking, okay, so you've got the true disciple and you've got the casual Christian. And so I sort of put a, um, a compare and contrast down on paper of what do the two look like. So for a disciple, Jesus is the beginning and the end. For a casual Christian, Jesus is just the means to an end. You believe in Jesus, but really you go to him purely for comfort in this life and salvation in the next. He is not your beginning and your end. For the true disciple, Jesus is your first love, no questions asked. 
For the casual Christian, Jesus is one of many loves. You love him, but you also love your family, your friends, your life, your job, just as much as him. For the true disciple, you have died to self. Christ is at the center. For the casual Christian, the self is still at the center. What motivates you more than anything else is your own ambitions, your own desires. And when I drew up this kind of compare and contrast, I really wrestled with it because I thought, you know what, I think of myself as a disciple, but if I look at that, 90% of the time, I live as a casual Christian. And because I'm sort of still believing in Jesus, I'm still loving Jesus, I'm still praying to Jesus, I can kind of kid myself that I'm ticking all of the boxes. But when I read this passage, it's uncomfortable because what it does is highlight the fact that I'm not. I'm not always living as a true disciple. Um, in some big ways. So for me, my children, you know what? You, you love your children. How on earth do you work out how to love Jesus more than your children? And yet I get these glimpses into the love of God to know that there is probably something that makes great sense about what Jesus is saying in that. But to be honest with you, I'm still trying to work out what it looks like in reality. Then there's other areas of my life that I think I could fix that, and I'm not even fixing that. So for me, my driving. So I drive a lot in London. I um, drive my children to school, so I do six trips a day just to school and back and nursery and back without even having gone anywhere else yet. And if you drive in London, it's, um, it's competitive, and it brings out... I'm not very competitive, but in these moments, I've become really competitive. And basically, the way that I drive is my time is the most important. Every second counts. Get out of my way. I have to get where I'm going and quickly, even if I'm not even in a rush. And when people are cross with me, which I find happens a lot, there's a lot of road rage, I mirror it with anger. So the other day, I had by mistake blocked a side road coming into a, a main road, and we were stuck at traffic lights, and there was someone stuck trying to get out, and of course, he was wanting to go the other way. He was really cross with me, and he was beeping his horn, and he was shouting at me, and you know, in that moment, I could have been really nice, but I wasn't. I was really annoyed. And so the lights went green, and all the cars ahead of me moved off. And I took ages to press my accelerator down and move out of his way, just as a, like, you're really winding me up. And then I thought to myself, do you know what? I'm not even vaguely loving Jesus in that. I'm not even vaguely loving others in that. Okay, so it might be really difficult to wrestle with the how do I put... God before my children, but I can definitely wrestle with the reordering of my loves in the car and actually thinking I'm going to love Jesus first when I drive and therefore love others first. And it's hit and miss, which you get with me in the car at the moment, but on a good day, I drive really nicely. I love people really well. My children are much happier. And actually, that's what discipleship is about. It's about the big things and the little things. So this challenge is stark. Jesus is saying, if you want to live for me, it's all or nothing. If you want to live for me, you have got to stop loving yourselves in the way that you do. But if I just left it at that, you would probably think, well, that doesn't, that's so stark, that's so uncomfortable, I'm going to walk away. Part one needs balancing with part two, because this passage only works if we look at it through the lenses of love. So I've recently just got um, some glasses. I sort of felt like Ed and I used to have this competition of who could read the credits when we were watching television, and we were always really equal. And then suddenly I realized 
oh dear, let's not have this competition anymore. I can't read them. So I went and got some glasses, and, um, and I put them on, and it was amazing how just the images were clearer, the pictures made more sense. And this passage, if you don't have the lenses of love on when you look at it, it's jarring sentences, it's uncomfortable, it, you don't, it doesn't make you feel good. You want to walk away. If you put glasses on that you look at it through the lens of love, suddenly this passage begins to make sense. Because right at the heart of this passage is an invitation to a love affair. A love affair between you and Jesus, between me and Jesus. It's an invitation to be loved and to love. That's what this passage is all about. I want you to um, imagine receiving a marriage proposal. Men, humor me, because now anyone can propose. Um, It goes like this. I would love you to be my wife or husband, but I realize these days that long life commitment is a bit much to ask for. So I'm happy for us to agree just to coexist and to maybe see other people from time to time. I'm happy for us to live our own lives and do what we want, because actually that's easier. And if we find it all too hard, then perhaps we can just decide to call it a day. I think these days it's called something like conscious uncoupling, and that's a good exit strategy to have up our sleeve. Now, if you received a marriage proposal like that, you are very unlikely to come away feeling loved by it. What you want in a proposal is all-out love from the person giving it and asking that from you. You want the person to be asking everything of you because they love you so much they can't bear to have anything less. That's what's happening in this passage. Jesus loves us so much that he cannot bear for us to love anyone or anything more than him or the same as him. He is jealous for us. It's a jealous love that he is proposing to us. He can't bear the thought of this kind of casual commitment to him. There's not a two-tier system with discipleship. You've got your 12 disciples who are giving everything, and then the crowd who are just casually following behind. He's saying it's all or nothing. There is one tier of discipleship. Anything less hurts God because he loves us so much. So it is a proposal of love. This is not a passage about judgment. This is not a condemning passage. It is a passage about love, inviting us to come and love Jesus as he loves us. So what do we do with this proposal if it's all about love? Well, Jesus says, he says, sit down. Sit down and consider this proposal. If you look in verses 28 to 29, he says, if you're going to build a tower... You would first sit down and work out if you have enough money to finish building the tower. If you're going to go to war, you would first sit down and you would consider, do I have the strategy to win this war? The three words that he uses in both is first sit down. So what he would say to you today, whether you are at the beginning of your journey, whether you haven't started your journey with God, or whether you're far into it and still looking at this passage thinking, I still can't do this. He would say, well, first sit down and consider it. And what currency do we need? Well, with the tower, the currency that you needed was money. With war, the currency that you needed was men or a good strategy. With discipleship, he says, the currency that you need is love. He said, don't don't come to me and commit out of duty, out of obligation, because it's the right thing to do, because there's something in it for you. He says, come to me only if you can love me. And it makes sense because 
only love would allow for you to love someone before your family, to give up even yourself, to give up your own, your own ambitions. Only love would push you to do something as crazy as that. I remember when I was first pregnant with Raph, our eldest, um, I'm not naturally a child person. I'm not one of those people who, if I see a baby, I immediately have to hold the baby. In fact, I was pretty petrified of children. I'd never changed a nappy. Um, we had no young children in our life. And we went to stay when I was about 15 weeks pregnant with some friends who had two young children and were pregnant with their third. And the, the mum opened the door and she just looked shattered. And then I spent a day basically looking into her life and I'm not, I'm not joking, I was pregnant at this point. I freaked out, I was like, I, I cannot do this. Your life is so costly, everything about your life has changed. And, um, and I was honestly, I was really, really quite worried about it. And at bath time, I even was watching bath time, the husband turned around and it was like he'd read my thoughts because I hadn't said anything. And he said, don't worry. It is an entirely different story when it's your own children because you love them. And that is basically what we need here. If you try and do discipleship without love, there is nothing that is going to be good about it. But if you have love at the center, if you love Christ, then everything makes sense and it changes everything. The cost is still there. Discipleship is still hard. The sacrifices are still hard. But you're compelled to do it because you want to follow Jesus, because you want to spend time with him, because you want him first in your life. Um, Tim Farron, um, the leader of the Liberal Democrats Party, um, I don't know if you heard his resignation speech. Um, politics aside, personal opinions aside, whatever you might think, what his resignation spoke of to me was of two love affairs in his life, a love affair for his party and a love affair for Jesus, for his faith. And his resignation speech talks about one winning over the other. And I just wanted to read what he said. I joined our party when I was 16. It is in my blood. I love our history, our people. I thoroughly love my party. Imagine how proud I am to lead this party. And then imagine what would lead me to voluntarily relinquish that honor. In the words of Isaac Watts, it would have to be something so amazing, so divine, it demands my heart, my life, my all. Tim Farron obviously loves Jesus. And obviously his love for Jesus was more than his career. And in that moment, he felt he was called to decide between the two. And he made the choice for his faith. The only reason he was able to do that was because he loves Christ, was because of love. So if we want to be his disciples, we need to ask for that love that enables us to do all that Jesus has talked about in this passage. And how do we do that? Well, we do what the crowd did. So the crowd haven't fully committed, but they're spending time with Jesus. They're following Jesus around. They're getting to know Jesus. And whether you have known Jesus all your life, but you feel like, I'm hardened, I don't have that love that's going to compel me to give these things up, or whether you haven't even committed and you're thinking, I don't even know what this looks like. Do what the crowd did. Spend time with Jesus. Get to know the God of love. My bet is that the people in the crowd soon came to love Jesus, that many of them became his disciples because they were so caught up in love for him. 
So that's the challenge, to start with love. Don't read this passage and feel judged. Don't read it and feel condemned. Read it and see the love that's right at the center of it. Start with love. And then let God, as you go through your Christian journey, keep reminding you of that love so that you can stay the course.